Welcome back to Hearness, where we acknowledge the deep connection to land and waters by First Nations people all around the world. And we discuss contemporary art practices that engender greater interconnection between body, place and space. I'm your host, Sarah Breen-Lovett, and this month on the one-year anniversary and special solstice episode of Hearness, we are delighted to have spoken to Gabriel Bates, whose intriguing 30-year-long career includes works in numerous mediums such as painting, sculpture, installation, performance and photomedia. Gabriel's practice applies the principles of immanence, interconnection and community to explore relationships with place. Her recent digital media series, which we will discuss, is called The Unknowns, and it blends animus thinking with performance and digital manipulation, imagining a realm of forgotten, unloved beings that dwell in the urban spaces of Sydney, Australia. Gabrielle also runs Cloudbow Residency on Wiradjuri Land in Candos, regional New South Wales, for creative and cultural producers. Like all Hearness episodes, I shall share detailed links for this podcast on hearness.org and images of the work discussed throughout the month on my Instagram page at Sarah Breen Lovett. The sound for this month's episode comes from a live set by DJ Semper Fee, which was performed as part of a ritual community procession in Camperdown Park, Sydney in 2019 that Gabriel was the creative producer of. The dub style tracks are composed from found sounds recorded directly from the site. At the end of the podcast, we will also hear a reading by HK Morgan of her writing about Gabriel's work, The Magic of Resistance for the Mystic City. This work, as well as her later works of the unknowns, have ties to Gabriel's master research into how witchcraft and ritual objects might be used for political action. for coming to speak to us on Hearness. I'm so, so excited to speak to you, especially around the time of the solstice and, and releasing um, your episode at this time for people to experience the magic of your work. I've been following it for a while and I really, really feel really connected and inspired by the work that you're doing, you know, really recently. And I think a you're probably getting a lot of attention for that too because I can see I'm following on social media um, people's response to your work too so I'd like to kind of come to to talking about that in in the towards the end end of the podcast but I think it'd be really great for our listeners to understand um, I guess how you started into art practice and um, how would you describe the evolution of your process over time. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And um, thank you so much also for doing what you do. Um, I feel enormous gratitude for um, the way in which you bring artists together to talk about these really important things. And um, I really enjoy listening to, uh, to them all. So thank oh, you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I guess, uh, how did my artwork uh, practice come into being? Um, I started practicing about 30 years ago. 
I, without rambling on about all the study, I've done about eight years of full-time study uh, over a 20, 30 year period. It's been um, a time of just, I, I guess I characterise my practice of just being a series of, um, of um, gentle failures. <laughs> It just, you know, uh, um, shifts and changes and it, I don't move forward, you know, I move sideways and backwards and I do a lot of spinning around in my practice. There's no, um, you know, traditional linear way. The other thing is that I like to try lots of different mediums to try and uh, find a way of expressing my concerns or um, just thinking around different questions. So that's, that's probably the best way to describe it. Um, I'm really interested in how we, we occupy and the way that we understand and enchant place. Mm. Um, and that, that has really become um, at the forefront of my practice in the last 10 years. Mm. Yeah, I think you can really see that through the work. Like it's very, um, you know, it's magical and it's political, um, it's environmental. There's so many aspects of the way that we that we relate to place and place relates to us that comes out in in your work. We talk about perhaps where you are now out at um, Candos, how you came to be there and how working with the landscape there um has that changed your work in any way it is um gently um i'm really i've only been in candles for about three years and that's um you some i'm sort of working between sydney and candles still uh if um your listeners don't know it's a regional town in new south wales it's not far from mudgee it's extremely ancient land um, it belongs to the uh, Wiradjuri people and Candles in particular is uh, the uh, Debi uh, people. It's one of those places that um, I find puts a spell over me. It draws me closer. It invites me to, um, to dance with it. it and uh, when I mean dance, I guess, you know, it's, it's my language for um, talking about engaging, um, having conversations with. It's um, a way, a, a series of um, subtle negotiations as best as I can through, you know, a, a white person's ears, listening, learning to listen for the first time in my life, to be perfectly honest, to listen deeply to place. And so um, that's, that's why I feel such an affinity for candles and why I feel that I could probably live the rest of my life out there because it's got so much to teach me. Mm. Has it changed your practice being there? Yeah, I think it has, and it's as much the community as it is the place. Um, there's a incredibly dynamic and um, very um, engaged. Spoken to Alex and Georgie from there before, and and Leo Lacrimines as well. And these are people who um, whose practices are um, are so inspiring and uh, and thought provoking. Uh, I guess they are helping me to um, they're helping me to find a confidence in a way in my own magical practice. It's something that I'm not always fully confident to talk to the uninitiated about, and even to to share my work in that in in that spec, especially my um, my friendship and um, my adventures with Leo out in um, say the Clandella State Forest and places like that. Uh, and also with the Critical Path Mysteries Lab, which we had as a residency last year. Those kinds of um, moments where um, 
deeply magical people, um, um, critical thinkers and people who are um, really aligned with their um, ancestral heritage, um, a strong sense of identity, but also a strong sense of what is beyond identity. Being with those people in place has been um, extremely provocative for me, quite profound. And you were inspired to begin your own residency there in Candos as well. Yeah, uh, I have done a number of residencies uh, over the last, um, I guess, 15 years. Um, first one being in Kuala Lumpur for a year and uh, mm. the second one being out in the jungle at the back of Penang in uh, the second another year. I've also been out at Hill End and um, a few other places um, in the Philippines. I just find that um, those experiences were so rewarding for me and um, really shifted my perspective in um, in in really surprising ways, life-changing ways. And I thought I, I would really love to be able to do that for some for other people. When I was um, fortunate enough to have some help in buying a little house in Candos, I thought the um, best way of um, making it work for me and for my community was to offer it to artists as a place of retreat without any specific outcomes, um, but somewhere where they could actually go and engage with the place and with the community and uh, whatever other magical forces they would like to encounter and, um, you know, um, just, just uh, provide that space for them. That's so fantastic that that you've been able to do that, especially with the culturally rich community that's there at the moment or has been there for a long time, obviously. But um, I'm wondering about those experiences that you had on the um, on the residencies. I mean, it sounds like you've had some wonderful, wonderful residencies. And if there's a kind of there are specific moments that you could describe with working in different places um, for our listeners that might be linked to different works or just um, different processes that you have developed. The first thing that I really uh, was confronted with was my own um, my own white entitled <laughs> Um, larrikin, smug Australianness that I wasn't even aware of until I went overseas. And going to a place like Malaysia, which is, you know, somewhere that has been um, colonised up until the 1960s and uh, finally become independent, um, having uh, been sort of uh, spending time in an arts community that really sort of put a mirror up to me and questioned my own um, entitlement was um, uh, really transformative. Uh, but then further from that, the um, friendships that I made within that community um, introduced me to a lot of different um, ways of thinking about um, animistic practice. And I became friends with a, a guy um, from Manila named Norberto Roldan, who is a um, beautiful artist. And he, um, he had been a priest um, who was, working across you know, Catholicism and animism in his own practice and using that, using a lot of assemblage within that practice that um, yeah, um, was very instructive to me. And, and just that sort, of, that, that, that sort of cracking open of all the systems that I'd come to, to think were, um, were true and right and fixed um, having those things kind of broken apart slowly by these people around me in this extraordinary place that was um, 
you know, the, the, the Southeast Asian tropics, you know, humid and challenging and full of moulds and microbes and being immersed in a place like that and having all of those confronting things happen to me or conversations in particular. I had work censored there while I was there. Really um, brought me into a space of, of um, thinking quite differently about my art practice. Did that lead into or influence the, the master's work that you were that you were doing yeah I think it did I, I sort of became interested in mapping um, for various reasons and um, I started out by you know with my master's being intentionally about maps and about um, mapping loss in a way but the more that I, I started making these sort of um, strange wall maps on the wall using all of these sort of little bits and pieces that I found from the streets um, around which, uh, you know, I was actually, that I was mapping, the more alive these large maps became and, and the more the people um, remarked on their living qualities. And I began to really start to think about this idea of new materialism and um, thinking about the living qualities of, of, um, of things. From there, thing, um, the master's research started to get really unusual and I started to introduce ideas of witchcraft and rituals into my practice. And, um, and that's when the master's started to really take off in a way. And before that, when I was, just, when I was working on the mapping work, I felt, I felt stuck and I felt that I wasn't really bringing the kind of creative honesty of who I who what what really compels me and um and so once the witchcraft and ritual um, elements arrived I felt I felt um excited well it's just so fascinating because I think our understanding or exposure to discussions around witchcraft and ritual if you you know you're not practicing um can be quite limited and then then the art world kind of creates this platform for sharing that world, I feel, and it's just so wonderful, I, you know, and I'm just wondering the, the kind of the meeting point between the, the, the witchcraft and the ritual and then the, the kind of the, the more public side of it. Do you see those as, how do you see the relationship between those? Oh, <laughs> such a good question. It's really, I find it very tricky. Uh, because my relationship to ideas of witchcraft and the practice of witchcraft are um, very are subterranean and they're things that I don't really like to talk about much with the uninitiated and yet I do produce these objects that are almost um, residual effects of something that has already happened. Yeah, um, sort of working between the public and the private domain is um, is quite difficult, and it's something that it, a lot of people find really um, quite challenging to understand or to appreciate. So, um, mm, I, I do find, yeah, I do find it quite limiting. Do you find um, in your later works where you've it's been it's had more of a performative, um, like a visual performative body in the works? Um, do you find that that body perhaps creates that a, kind of a link between the two that is a bit easier for people to relate to? I think it is. And in a way, it's easier for me to relate to as well, purely because, you know, I've been I've been really wanting to move out of um, move away from creating objects that can be 
um, commodified. This has always been a very big personal problem for me is, um, you know, sustaining the practice, feeding myself, but also putting, a, you know, some kind of a price value on what I produce. And the, um, and, and just, you know, with every iteration of objects that I make, I just sort of always feel so sort of disappointed. Um, so to be able to move into performance and still be engaged artistically in something that um, is, is so much more in the moment and um, so much more about um, not necessarily um, trying to put a, you know, a price value on something um, just gives me, it gives me a lot more, um, I, I don't know, I just sleep better. <laughs> And, you know, I think that's that's a part of it. The whole process for me in this whole thing is is, is um, working between what negotiating between various states of resistance and effort and non-resistance, and sort of trying to find those tensions in between of um, you know giving and taking. And uh, when I feel even the slightest bit of resistance in my body around something, if, if, if in my practice, if something doesn't feel fresh and effortless. And I know that sort of sounds like some kind of jargon, but if it doesn't feel, uh, if it doesn't sort of come easily, it's, um, I, I really feel like I shouldn't be doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, I totally understand that. And I think that it, I think you can really feel when you're kind of in the flow of making what you're kind of sharing with people. But then when you think about putting a price tag onto that, um, it seems to cheapen the kind of really deep connection to consciousness and things that, that you're working with. You're working with ways of being deeply with this world. And, um, you know, it's beyond money. The wealth that you get from that and that you share with other people is beyond money. So it kind of, yeah, it's, I'm, I struggle with it as well. I, I understand where you're coming from. Mm. And that's exactly how I feel about it as well, is that, you know, um, I'm more than happy to share as much as I possibly can. I guess we could talk about the urban unknowns um, because, I mean, I could talk about them forever. <laughs> um, and I just think, well, they're just so magical. Like, how about I describe what I see and then you can tell me what you see. So in the middle of COVID when everything was upside down, suddenly these images started appearing in my digital space, my digital realm um, that you were making. And I just, I just felt like there was this portal to another way of seeing the whole, the way we exist in the whole world that dissolved boundaries between us and place and, you know, different inhabitants and beings and, um, and every one that you put out just so magical and I mean they are individual and I think people connect so they're, they're people dressed in different um kind of ritually ritualized outfits they kind of look to me I don't know if that's how you describe them but I think people connect really deeply to specific ones um and that relates to something in them but I think overall as a whole body of work it's so impressive so yeah, is that how, how would you describe urban unknowns for people that didn't know what we're talking about? Oh, thank you so much. So 
that's such a was such a beautiful description. I love that way. There's sort of like this alien landing in your social media feed because <laughs> that's kind of how it was. Um, um, it was COVID and I live alone and I had been thinking for a long time, I'd been developing the idea of doing a one-on-one -on -one performance practice. I had done a really large performance the year before with community in Camperdown involving um, a, a DJ with a live set and, and we made masks and it was all dress-ups. And um, because it was a council-led event, it just became this sort of um, sort of this, this monster that became out of control. And I was so exhausted after it. I just thought, if I'm ever going to do performance again, it's just going to be one-to-one -one and that's it. <laughs> so when COVID came along, I was absolutely forced to only, you know, have any kind of interaction with one other person at a time. So I began to invite um, my buddy, uh, Winnie Fokus, to um, come to the studio and I'd say, oh, just, just let me dress you up. <laughs> and, um, and she was totally open to it. She was so beautifully open to it. Um, so, and I said, well, just dress you up in whatever I've got here in the studio, like, you know. And I started to pull out some of the things from Dub Circle and there are a couple of old masks I have lying around and um, I had a bit of face paint and, and we started to play. And then I said, let's go outside. And we went outside and the um, something happened. Something just started to happen where because of what she was wearing, and I'm going to be really out there now and talk about um, something in um, a, a cold and magical circles, which is um, called signaling. And uh, when you shift the way that you appear, when you shift out of your uh, human uh, assemblage and you shift into another assemblage an assemblage that's even slightly strange things notice and so when we went outside uh, the trees uh, started to just turn in a little bit towards us and well that's how it felt it appeared um, the birds started to behave quite differently the uh, sounds in the park dogs children animals you know everything everything just sort of leaned in a little bit and I started to take photographs and when I got home and looked at the photographs I just realized that something quite extraordinary was happening and I didn't quite so I invited her back and we did another couple of different dress-up shoots and um, again I went home and, and looked at the photographs and Again, I realised that, um, you know, what was happening was um, was uh, being captured digitally, but with a little bit of augmentation, a little bit of digital augmentation, I could really heighten that experience in some way as how I was experiencing it. And from there, I became bold and I started to um, say to one or two other people, would you be interested in doing it? And with their consent, they came. And I noticed that the process of, of assembling and working with only found materials, found objects, recycled materials, um, it had a ritual quality to it. So there was this process of where we sat and we initiated and we talked through what, we, what might happen. We made sure that it was always unplanned. Um, 
And then we went through the assemblage process as this character or a spirit being began to um, emerge or assemble itself. And it really was, you know, just looking, working with what fit. So if something fit on a body, then the next thing that came after it was something that talked to that thing. So that the assemblage was a, you know, a conversation or almost, a, you know, a, um, a process of magnetics calling to one another to, to um work with each other until suddenly this new being was standing in front of me completely transformed and of course I always made sure that whoever was within the assemblage or the, the transformation process could never see the transformation until they walked out in front of the mirror and then the process of actually communing out in place and finding where that character belonged so um, it, it, you know, there, there would be echoes um, or passions or holes or things that would just lean in and, 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 you know, magnetically be drawn in so that this whole kind of conversation of relational dynamics began to emerge visually. And um, to me, it was, it, was, it was like watching a place and, and things within a place dance together. So... Um, I think that's probably the simplest way I can describe it. And then once I got the images home and I began to, to look through what I collected and there'd just be, you know, that one or two where something just would really speak out and say, dance with me some more. And so I would use that um, process of digital manipulation to, to, um, to dance a little longer, you know. Um, and so that was the final part of the ritual really, you know. Um, Although it was very important that we always sort of grounded down afterwards and sort of returned back to the human world because, um, you know, um, it, it's quite um, energetically altering. In those days, I was only doing one every two weeks. And so energetically, it was fun and exciting. But just recently, I did a three-week stint where I pretty much did one, did 12. And it's taken me about three or four weeks to recover from that um, because it's it's just such an intense process of energy raising and concentration and focus and really holding space for people because um, one of the important things I do now is I don't ask, I don't invite people anymore. I put out a general call and I only work with people who really feel called to do it. Okay. So um, you know I don't I don't target anyone. Um, yeah, that's really very important to me. So that's that's sort of how it's been working. I've got so many questions, but I guess the first, first one that comes to mind is how how have people responded like to you during the process and afterwards? Have you been surprised by the response? Yeah, it's such such a great question. Some people uh, dive in like it's so beautiful to watch. You know, they they are so deeply transformed when they get a mask on and a little bit of, you know, sort of, you know, you know, random costuming. Uh, and then they go out into place and, and they are different people. You know, they come in one person and, and they go out uh, somebody with, um, you know, a whole lot of new and, and quite... Um, <laughs> revelatory uh, qualities um, some people are, are very um, 
you know, very, very intellectual people and they, they, they struggle with the process. But, uh, often the um, images, like, I think that, that is um, transferred in some way in the process. Some people, um, yeah. But the beautiful thing is, is that they are people from all different walks of life and people from many different cultural backgrounds and um, socioeconomic backgrounds and um, levels of education. And I just love that because, um, you know, you get this sort of real cross-section of humans being really open to thinking about and experiencing the world uh, in a non-human way. Mm. And so, so the process is you're not, you're not saying, okay, this person's going to be a barnacle or this person's going to be a rosella that comes through that emerges through that process the ritual process of making what what goes what like as you say what magnetically goes together and like obviously the experience for you with your background and your um, openness and ability to connect you can feel you know like you say these things like the trees turning towards you or the energy of the place becoming aware in the shift and do you feel do the, the people that are participating feel that too or are they having their own thing because they're you know going through their own process of such transformation maybe they're not as aware of what's outside because they feel themselves transforming I'm not sure yeah look I think that there are so many different levels and you know everybody turns up with a whole lot of different things going on in their lives so some people are going to be far more receptive than others and you know others are just going to be behind the mask thinking about what they're going to make for dinner so there was one beautiful beautiful woman who um, performed for me on top of a wood chip pile and she really channeled the pain of that tree um, being carved up and sacrificed you know and she she you know her response was you know so so very beautiful and I feel quite emotional about that another another um participant um was a widow and um we went and found a beautiful wharf for her um being to spend some time on and I had absolutely no idea that um that was the wharf that her um her partner had taken some of the last photographs of their daughter and so and that you know the, the more that I was doing this the more connected to the other things that were going on with people I was become you know was happening and so we would be drawn just you know um make we would magnetically go to places that had significance for those people or um really lifted a whole lot of, you know, um, or activated a whole lot of different energies. There was another um, another person, a participant, we went under a bridge which had all of these um, convergent energies. There was a railway line, a light rail line, a, a road, a drain, um, and, um, a, and a canal, and they were all converging in this, this one particular spot, and the, and the place... The veils in that that place, the energetic veils in that place, were so thin, uh, and she, we were both remarked at how deeply haunted we felt in that place. Mm. This is fascinating. So, not only does the creature emerge from the process, but the place where you're going emerges from the process. And um, I'm wondering about 
differences energetically working with the urban space? Uh, so I, I haven't done a great deal of shooting out in natural environments yet. What, no, I don't like the word natural environments, um, in, in less urban environments uh, and places. Um, I've done a little bit, but most of the shooting I've done has been and the, um, the, the, the rituals that we've conducted have been very much within um, human altered environments. There's been some level of human alteration. And even when I did do one shot, shoot out in Clandala, um, which I, um, I'm keeping for Samantha, those images, um, we did end up working with um, a discarded old car. So there's, there's something about these creatures um, I haven't really come to understand yet or something about these entities that are stuck. You know, they are, they are stuck between, a, you know, um, a, 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 they're stuck within a dysfunctional world and uh, and they uh, uh, they they are grieving it. They're uh, uh, managing within it. They are hiding within it. But they haven't really gone. You know, I haven't really got to that wild place yet, where I've been able to encounter the um, a freer freer expression. Of, um, of those sorts of beings. So I'm, yeah, I, that's that's coming, I hope. But I'm also sort of hoping that my photography will um, improve enough that I'll be able to take works which situates the the uh, the being as um, less central to the image and more within relation to the image. I'm not quite there yet. Oh, I think you're there. <laughs> I think you're already there. Like they're just so, so, so powerful. And it's interesting while you're talking about the the urban space and, you know, I've pondered this for a lot of time about the way that you feel in the urban environment as well as, uh, um, you know, we don't want to say nature, we don't want to say landscape, environment, you know what I mean? It's all so bloated, but in less densely you know, um, processed environments, let's say, um, because that's what it feels like to me. Like it feels like, you know, the more densely we process our environments, the more energy in some ways is there, layered energy from all different places, whereas the less processed places, there's still lots of energy, obviously really deep, deep energy, but it's not lay, layered and mixed up with lots of other energies, Um so yeah, that's a, that's interesting that you say that um, as well. And um, I guess thinking about back out at um, Gangari or Glendala, they're, they're, they're the places that you're working with for the Critical Path Mysteries Lab. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about it, but um, there's, there's not a huge amount I can say, just that um, we were working predominantly in Glendala, but also on the Ralston Commons. Um, there were five of us working there, Leah Kremenes, uh, Weizen Ho, uh, Latai Tomapoi and Peter Swain, uh, who is a Wiradjuri elder, and all of us from really different cultural backgrounds who came to share practice and talk about the possibility of um, magic and choreography as a provocation. Mm -hmm. And so we spent a lot of time just really negotiating with the forest in different ways 
um, using um, techniques or practice or sort of um, rituals that uh, included vocalization, meditation, uh, walking, um, and at that very considered choreograph walking where we really let things choreograph us. We, um, we, we, we sat with rocks, you know, we just sat with them and we just spent time feeling that time within a rock. Podcast with um, Hinterdingen and, and Haynes that talking about the electromagnetic fields of rocks and trying to record them and that sense of deep time. Just, just sort of sitting next to a rock and, and allowing our bodies to, um, to consider that at some point that we were under the ocean, you know, um, because it's all a lot of um, very rich sedimentary rock that um, was from the ocean floor uh, up in Mandala. So from um, a geological perspective, it's um, really, uh, you know, informative and intense and then we uh, were exposed to beautiful Wiradjuri teachings by Peter. We spent a lot of time down by the river playing with rock pigments. We experimented with different materials in different ways. Um, yeah, it was transformative for me because I think um, spending time with those people, it, it taught me to be a lot more patient. I think that's something that um, that I, I forget to do to be it helped me come to an understanding of, of the need to, to really slow down just in general then of that importance and I know that that was something that a huge message that came across during the, the pandemic or continues to come across from the pandemic something that we're not really listening to at the moment but um, it, it's just it's really in my bones that um, that urgency slow down mm, yeah I think it's really really important and I think wait like as you mentioned ways in hose on there and she's a um, wonderful collaborator of mine as well who made some of the sounds um in the beginning of the heinous episodes and hopefully she'll be coming to speak to us soon on the show as well but I find working with her wonderful because she's really good at reminding me to slow down um and really feel what you're doing um, and because I'd be one to rush about and always in doing, doing rather than being. And um, and I do, I really feel that the pandemic really, you know, is forcing us into this deep being. Um, and the more we be with place and space and ourselves, the more we become aware of, you know, these energies that you're talking about. And and then hopefully the greater care will start taking for everything because we'll see it not as separate to ourselves, you know. So it's um, such such powerful work that you're doing. Like you're offering this most amazing service. And if I was there, I'd be lining up. When we're, whenever we're in the same country again, I'm coming. I'll be, I'll be scared, but I'm coming. I will trust the process and what's going to come out, you know. You must be getting a lot of, like attention for the work are you uh, well it, it is it is getting the attention not me um which I'm really grateful for um I it, it excites me and it compels me and I can see the possibility of um, being able to work in different places with different communities that's probably the most exciting thing for me um so um there's that and there's also the um, just this this sort of I, I really hope that I can take it 
to a place where it can get even weirder. And I'm not sure how to get there yet, but um, I think just if I stay in practice and process for long enough, it'll arrive. Mm, for sure. And um, I mean, you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, but I'm wondering, I guess, about the reverse influence of this onto your, you know, your witchcraft or your ritual-based practices. Do you do you see this influence coming back to your personal practice as well? Like that is just for yourself, or is this all intertwined and you know? Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely intertwined, Sarah. Uh, yeah, I think I, I'm. Yeah, it's teaching me so much about what this very thing that I thought was witchcraft is is and is not. And, um, you know, the thing that I've come to really understand is uh, that it is, it is something beyond language. It's not just about, you know, charms and spells and manipulating and twisting the world to bend it to your will. It's much more about being in conversation and communing with the non-human world uh, and really transcending just being a human as best as possible. magic of resistance. Breathed in memory, our communities and the homes, gardens, streets, trees and gutters that embody them have a heartbeat. It is a pulse to which we are constantly reborn, from the quickening rush of birth to the golden hush of our final resting place. There's always that tingling sense of deja vu. The corner butcher shop, its tiled planes once slick with blood, is now home to a Gen Y overachiever, the carcass hook replaced by a plasma screen over a hipster bar. Out the back, the abo tree, still spilling creamy green fruit for $20 breakfasts, has a skeleton treehouse high in its branches, festooned in childhood dreams. And a hill's hoist, wet washing dripping onto its rust-stained poles, planks in the lacklustre wind. Our built-in natural environments are fundamentally connected to our sense of identity. But in an increasingly fraught world, where places disregarded in favour of development, terra nullius borne high on the candied snouts of government and real estate agents, there is a need for higher power. The fugitive beauty of Gabrielle Bates's mystic city weaves a spell around the viewer. Magic emanates from amulets made from foraged and anointed ephemera, bones, sticks, twine, horsehair, and the spittle of an angry young woman at a council meeting, invoking the spirit world and its animistic sovereignty for protection and possession. A talismanic memory map is an emotional geography of cherry pip conversations, a battery of chicken dinners and the virulent need to ward off profit-driven development as it shatters communities and holds land hostage. The relationship between culture and place shifts in size as if alive. But the law of place is constant. Gnarled fig trees will grow again. Dead pets will hold sway in garden cemeteries. Sun-streaked boards will find new purpose at the protesters' camp. The rust of ages will flake into a showering amber light over high-vis destruction with a mandate for stealth and secrecy. 
The magic of animistic resistance calls on our mythology and fable to protect us, to fight back. Let that howl grow and let the venal authority that challenges our communities, our homes and our rights see the innate power of our place.